0: about Nehemiah, and I'm excited about that opportunity, and uh, we are going to do this kind of semi-sermon semi-class, so if you have some questions and comments, feel free to uh, chime in with those, and we'll also probably at the end, at least at some sessions where we have time, kind of throw out some questions for application and to just try to think about the application of our life. I want to start for just a second by giving you sort of the background of the story, I mean, some of you know this well, some of you may not, uh, but you remember that uh, the nation of Israel was really born, more or less, in Egypt, and they were, became a nation as they came out uh, of Egyptian bondage in the Exodus, and Moses led them to the Red Sea and the wilderness, and then you remember after 40 years wandering in the wilderness, they entered the land of Canaan, Joshua led them to conquer the land, and uh, at first, there was no centralized government, but the people kept falling away from God. God bringing oppression and, and judges deliverers, uh, bringing salvation for them over and over again. They kept that cycle up. And then they clamored for a king, and God gave them Saul and David and Solomon. Then the kingdom split. You've got 19 kings in the northern kingdom, 19 in the southern Kingdom. Both of them went into captivity. The northern kingdom into Assyrian captivity in about 722. The kingdom of Judah in three ways went into Babylonian captivity, ultimately in 586 or so. Babylon had conquered Assyria, so sort of swallowed them up. They were the country that, that defeated Assyria. And uh, so when uh, Persia swallowed up Babylon, conquered them... Persia let the Israelites go back, and nearly 50,000 went back in about 538 under the leadership of Zerubbabel, and uh, Joshua was the high priest, not the same Joshua from a thousand years before, of course, and uh, they started to work on the temple, and then they got sidetracked and uh, uh, took, uh, after 15 years or so, it took the prophets Haggai and Zechariah stirring them up to get busy and finish the temple. For all, they needed a place for God to dwell. They needed to the care that God did dwell among them. But there were still some issues. They get the temple built about 516, but there were various problems. And in 458, a scribe named Ezra came back from Persia, came from Persia to Jerusalem, and really led the people to make some spiritual reforms in their lives. And about 13 years later is when this story starts of Nehemiah. And uh, look at the first verse: "The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah." Now it happened in the month Chislev in the 20th year while I was still in Susa, the capital. Now there's several things you see even in that first verse. That verse is written in what grammatical person? First person. And a lot of Nehemiah is Nehemiah telling the story himself. There'll be a lot of him just telling it in the "I, my, me" format. And uh, there's two other Nehemiahs in the Book of Nehemiah besides this Nehemiah. No other Hakelias in the whole Old Testament. Uh, his, his father's name. This was in the 20th year, uh, probably, of Artaxerxes' reign, who was the king that was reigning, uh, that actually Nehemiah was working for. We'll see at the end of this chapter, he was actually the cupbearer for Artaxerxes. So this is about 445. It happens in Susa, the capital. Susa seems to be the place where the Persian kings would spend the winter They spent the summers in a city called Ekbatna. So that's kind of the book's introduction. It's kind of giving you the bearings of that. And in a moment, we'll see the crisis that the first half of the book is going to deal with. Anything you want to say before we uh, continue? Okay, would somebody read chapter 1, verses 2 and 3?
1: The Hanani I, one of my brothers, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who were left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire.
0: Okay. So who came to visit Nehemiah? Who? Hananiah, one of his brothers, evidently a brother that lived back in Jerusalem. (laughs) Nehemiah is living in the Persian capital. And so when Hananiah comes to visit his brother Nehemiah, what does Nehemiah ask him about? Yeah, look at it in verse 2. He wants to know about the Jews who had escaped, that is, the ones who have gone out of Persia back to Jerusalem, and about Jerusalem itself. He wants to know about them. Now, that tells you some things about Nehemiah, doesn't it? He's doing very well in, for himself in Persia, but he takes initiative to ask about his fellow brethren and the state of the God's city where the temple was. He's a man who cares about other people. You know, his interest is not focused just on himself and his immediate family and circumstances. Here is a place far away, a place I don't know if he'd have ever visited. It's the city of the temple, but he's a long ways from there, but he cares about it and he wants to know about it. Does that teach us something? You know, we ought to have, more of a concern about the Lord's people and the Lord's work in other places. Not just the part that immediately affects us where we are. I think that speaks well of Nehemiah, that he had that uh, attitude. He's comfortable. He's got a responsible job in a good environment. In a fine Persian city that's noted for its prosperity and its fine buildings and magnificent gardens and all that, why should he care? You know that's the way we think a lot of times. As long as I'm doing okay, I don't care about other people, other places, or if the gospel's doing well or not somewhere else. Well, it's no big deal to me. I'm not there. Well, Nehemiah wasn't there, but he cared about there, and he asked about it. And what does he find out? What does Hannah and I tell him? It's not a good report. Things are really bad. And Hanani doesn't sugarcoat it, and he doesn't hide it, and he doesn't pretend that it doesn't exist. He tells what's going on. Now, I need to tell you a few things about this situation. If the walls and the gates are all broken down and burned, what's the big deal about that? No protection, no security. They relied on those walls and gates to keep safe. If there's no protection, well, there were other walled cities that they had, so did it really make much difference? The temple was there. And the temple really was what? The house of God that there's no protection for the city where God's house is. That's a disgrace. And then almost nobody even lived there because it was very vulnerable to enemy attack. Now, my question is, why? What has happened? Well, I think a couple of things have happened. They didn't seem as concerned as they probably should have been early on to make sure Jerusalem had the protection it needed. They weren't that concerned as I suggested at first, even with getting the temple rebuilt. Haggai will tell them, when he gets them stirred up to start rebuilding again, he said, you say it's not time to rebuild God's house, but you've had plenty of time to rebuild and handle nicely your own houses they just didn't seem as concerned about God dwelling with them and getting the house built for him. Maybe they just weren't that concern about God sitting and being the wall, getting the wall rebuilt around his city, at least not at first. But there's also another factor. I need you to you can keep your finger here if you want to. But I need you to turn back to Ezra chapter 4. Now, Ezra 4 is a little complicated because it actually starts out talking about. When Haggai and, well, before Haggai and Zechariah came on the sea, when they were starting to, to build that temple back, they got some flack for it from the people who were the uh, prior inhabitants of that region, and they hired counselors against them, this is Ezra 4 verse 5, to frustrate their counsel during the days of Cyrus and so forth. They, they made my part of them. And they stopped, verse 24, to work on the house of God. But the part of this in between verse 5 and verse 24 tells about two later times when the enemies did similar things. Some people don't read this chapter very carefully, and they think it's all talking about that period of time right then with the rebuilding of the temple. But it's not. You look carefully at four 6. Now, in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign... They wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. That's one case. And then in verse 7, in the days of Artaxerxes, these guys wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And we've actually here got a, a copy of a tet- the text of the letter. So this is like, uh, you know, if you've ever been reading in a book and you get a flashback, well, this is a flash forward. This is illustrating how the enemies operated from later times, and so this happened just a few years before Nehemiah. Now listen to the text of this letter that these enemies wrote in the days of Artaxerxes. This is verse 8. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes as followers. Then wrote Re-ha- Rehung the commander, Shimpsai the scribe, and the rest of their colleagues, the judges, the lesser governors, the officials, the secretaries, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nation, which the great and honorable Osnapper deported and settled in the, of the re- city of Samaria, and in the rest of the region beyond the river. Now this is the copy of the letter which they sent to him. It takes a while to get to that, doesn't it? To King Xerxes, Your servants, the man in the region beyond the river, And now let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us in Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now let it be known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and it will damage the revenue of the king. Now, because we are in the service of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to see the king's dishonor, therefore we stand and inform the king, so that a search may be made in the record books of your problems, and you will discover in the record books, and learn that this city is a rebellious city, and damaging the kings and provinces, and that they have incited revolt within it in past days. Therefore the city was laid waste. We inform the king that if the city is rebuilt, and the walls finished, As a result, you will have no possession of the province beyond the river. So they are just for the king's own good, these enemies of the Jews, informing King Arbazerxes that you better not let them finish this project of getting the walls built around Jerusalem, because if you do, they've got a horrible track record of rebellion and insubordination and not paying their taxes and you've got a real problem on your hand, and we just wanted to let you know that because we really care about your honor and all that kind of stuff. That's what they wrote. Well, verse 17, then the king sent an answer to Rehum the commander, to Shimshai the scribe, and to the rest of their colleagues who live in Samaria, and to the rest of the provinces beyond the river, peace. And now the documents which you sent to us have been translated and read before me. A decree has been issued by me, and a search has been made, and it has been discovered that the city has risen up against the kings in past days, that rebellion and revolt have been perpetrated in it, that mighty kings have ruled over Jerusalem, governing all the provinces beyond the river, as that tribute, custom, and toll were paid to them. So now, issue a decree to make these men stop work that this city may not be rebuilt until a decree is issued by me. Beware of being negligent in carrying out this matter. Why should damage increase to the detriment of the king? Well, that sure played into their hand. You know, the king said, well, I found out sure enough, and so stop him and make sure he doesn't hurt. Of course, they probably didn't need much encouragement to do that, but that's what the king said. They are not to do any rebuilding on those walls until and unless I issue a further decree. Now that is going to turn out to be a very important fault. The laws of the Medes and the Persians, you learn in several books, including Daniel, and probably noticed they couldn't be revoked, because the Persian kings could never make a mistake. So they never made a law that needed to be revoked. I suppose there were a lot of times that the Persian kings had sense enough to realize, in that case, they put a, better put an escape clause in, that, well, this applies until a further decree is issued. That's what they do in this case. If it hadn't been for that, I'm not sure what would have happened in the book of Nehemiah. Of course, we understand the hand of God is behind all of these things. So, he says, they are to stop until I issue a further decree. In verse 23, that as soon as the copy of King Artaxerxes' document was read before Reblam and the described and their colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem to the, to the Jews and stopped them by force of arm. Now it doesn't specifically say here that they tore the stuff down and and burned it that they were working on right then, but I bet you anything they did. Now we know back the Babylonians had also torn up the walls and so forth, but I, I I wouldn't be at all surprised if what Hanani is telling Nehemiah is more about this recent effort to rebuild the wall and how that project stopped and everything got torn back down and destroyed again, even the progress they had made on the wall. So I think they hadn't been as worried about it early on as they should have been. When they finally got busy building on it, that's when the enemy writes this letter to King Artaxerxes, and he writes a letter back saying, stop them immediately, and they do, and there you have it. So Nehemiah asks, and Hananiah says, This is really bad. Jerusalem is in terrible shape. Now, God, who is, as I said, in charge of everything, has coincidentally, quote-unquote, put Nehemiah in a very important place and prepared him for a very strategic role. Nehemiah so happens, we're going to learn this, in verse 11, to be the cupbearer to this very art of <laughs> He sees him every day, I suppose. And so he is in a position to theoretically influence things. It's amazing how, when something needs to happen in the work of God, the right people just happen to be in the right places to do the job. And it's amazing how that just so happens all the time? Uh, but, but when we're in that position, we ought to stop and think you reckon the Lord may have had something to do with us being where we need to be to get the job done for the Lord? All right, comments and questions through verse 3. John? It doesn't have much to do with that, but what you say the prophets were that spurred them? Haggai and Zechariah were the ones that got them to build the temple back from about 520 to 516. Anything else? Okay, would somebody read then what Nehemiah does when Hanani tells him about this terrible situation? That's four through eleven. When I heard these
1: words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, "I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments." Let your ear now be attentive, and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my Father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you were unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me, keep my commandments and do them. though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you. May your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight like to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man.
0: Now he was the cupbearer, the king. Well, look at Nehemiah's reaction to what his brother told him. How did he respond? He prayed. How else did he respond? He was really upset. Wow. He heard these words. He sat down and wept and mourned for days. And continued fasting and praying. It's not his problem. It's not his city. He is not a prophet or a priest or a king. Wow. He's that upset about what's happened over there in Jerusalem? Isn't that encouraging to see that? To understand the depth of his zeal for God? And, and, you know, real men don't cry. Well, if you read the Bible, you find out that's not true. You know, he was upset about this. And he denied himself food for several days or longer. So he could devote himself to praying about this. You know, we're going to find out. Nehemiah is one of these really decisive, strong-willed men of action who likes to do things. I think it's interesting that though that was his mentality, that's the kind of his personality, he's, he's praying for a few months, probably about four months, before he acts. they just speaks so well of him. He understood. There's one the matter he needed to do on his own. He, he shouldn't rush into this. He needed the Lord's involvement. And we'll see that all the way through Nehemiah. He was a man of action. But more than that, he was a man of prayer. And this whole book starts with this constant praying he did about this. Somebody had said his life was bathed in prayer. I like that expression. That makes you really think about it. Uh, so, that, that, that's his immediate reaction in verse 4. And then 5 through 11, we get to overhear his prayer. And hear what he says in the prayer. Now look at verse 5. He starts by by simply addressing God. I beseech you, O Lord God of Heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. Now, we really need to think about and focus on God when we pray. You know, because if you... If you really look at the Lord, he dwarfs the problems of Jerusalem. You know, when you think about how awesome he is, it puts Jerusalem's situation in proper perspective. Jerusalem and Susa both are two little things facts compared to the great, awesome God that's always faithful, that you can always trust and count on. Here's something to think about. In Bible praying, I regret to say not nearly like this in my life, but in Bible praying, it is very common for them to put more emphasis on how they address God than what we do. They call in things that relate to what they're saying in the prayer. They don't just say God, 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 or Father, 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 Father. Father. Now, sometimes they'll say God or Father, but often they'll say something like, O oh, Lord God of Heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant, loving kindness for those who love and keep His commandment. That's quite an address before you start the prayer. You know, almost we just say, you know, God, I, I need to say something. But but to really speak to God and address Him in a more developed way. Well, I think that tells you that when. People in the Bible prayed, they really thought about God as they prayed to him. It wasn't just throwing something out to him. It was focused on who he really was. And then the next thing, let your ear now be attended. And your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servants, which I pray before you now, day and night, on behalf of the vision of Bishop, your servant. He you just asked God to listen, which is also very encouraging and very helpful. Sometimes we just take it for granted. God's supposed to listen to our prayers. It's appropriate for us to ask Him to. He doesn't have to. It's not like it's just His job. He chooses to. And by asking Him to, we acknowledge the fact that it's a choice on His part. It's not just something that He's got to do with His God. And then, the next thing Nehemiah does... It's just the most probably about the most amazing thing in this prayer to me. He says, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel. Now I can get that part. God, I'm going to tell you about all the sins of those Israelites. But that's not what he says. Confessing the sons, sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. What do you see in that? Humility. Yeah, he's including himself. It is so much more enjoyable to confess everybody else's sins and not our own. But Nehemiah is including himself in this. When he's thinking about the great and awesome God, he immediately thinks about his own sins before God, and he doesn't shift the blame. He's thinking about the people's failures, but that makes him think about his own failures too. His own sins are part of the broad spectrum of failures of the people of God in that time. As a leader, he is identifying with the people and their sin. Now there's a number of chapters that do that in the Bible. Daniel 9 is interesting. As extremely righteous as we see Daniel being, it's all the we have sinned. Even worse so, I think, Ezra not. Where he's confessing the sins that we've committed in the intermarriages. But Ezra just got there, and he wasn't married to a foreign wife. I would have confessed, you know, when I got here, you know, there sure were a lot of people in these intermarriages, and they should have not done that. You know, Ezra even identifies with that. Reminds me a lot of Jesus, who bore our sins on the cross. He carried our griefs. He identified himself with our sins in that way. And that's what you see the the leaders of the people doing. You know, he didn't portray himself as superior to everybody else. He didn't say, you know, those people down there at my church, they're not doing very good. We are. That's a real challenge sometimes. I have a hard time as a Christian. When somebody says, you know, how's the church where you worship with? How, How are they doing if I, I, I well, you know, we're doing pretty good except, except, except they don't all do all that well in this or that. You know, when it comes to the bad parts, we always say that. You know, it's the other people. We're not involved. We need more of a sense of our participation in those things and confess for ourselves as well. You know, there is a bit that we need to avoid that says you hurt your effectiveness if you ever let anybody else know that you've ever done anything wrong. You know, if you let people know you've done something wrong, then you'll never influence them anymore. You think that's true? Do you quit listening to somebody if they admit they've done something wrong? What do you usually do if they admit they've done something wrong? At least you appreciate their honesty and their courage. The truth is, we don't usually hide that well what we do wrong. So if we don't confess it, it's not going to keep people from knowing. It's just going to keep them from knowing that we recognize it and we're sorry about it. That's usually the way that is. So I appreciate the fact that Nehemiah... He confesses the people's sins and his own with that, and he recognizes as he begins to pray to God that a part of the problem with the wall is that they've not been really faithful to God. They haven't really done what God told them. Nehemiah and his people have failed, and so they can't come to God and say, God, you know, we've sure kept our end of the bargain, now where are you? (laughs) They have to acknowledge I your God, God to keep the covenant, but we haven't. We need to be quicker to confess our sins. That's probably a part of praying we don't do as well with. I know we don't publicly, at least the prayers I hear, very rarely in public prayers do I hear very much confession. I hear a lot more, you know, requests than I do confession. I wonder if that's true in our private prayers too. Do we just struggle with telling God? How long we live. And then he asks, Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the earth. But if you return to me and keep my commandments to do them, those, those of you who have been scattered were in the remote, most remote part of the heavens. I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong So he appeals to God and to what God said. God said, if you come back, I'll gather you and I'll bring you to this place where I caused my name to go. I like the idea. Of when we pray, we pray based on what God promised. The requests we make are the requests for what God said he wanted. We need to be praying, God, if your will be done, right? We don't want our will to be done if it's not God's will, all right? But there are some things we know are God's will. The things he's told us are his will. When he tells us that's what he wants, that's what I want to pray for. Because I want what he wants. He wants the best stuff, always. Even if I don't see it, he does. He, he knows everything, and he loves me more than than anybody. More than I love myself. And so, if he wants it, I want it. And so, God had said, "If you return, this is what I'll do." So Nehemiah bases his prayer on those promises of God. And so, then he makes his specific request, verse eleven: "O oh Lord, I beseech you." May your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Well, that's a tall order, right? Because what had Artaxerxes done a few years before? Issued an edict immediately, immediately stop work on those walls. This means if he's going to be successful before this man, it's going to mean Artaxerxes issuing another edict that's basically the opposite of the one he issued a few years before. I mean, how often would you expect the Persian emperor to change his mind? And he said back at that time, he'd done some research, and he realized how rebellious Jerusalem had been in the past. This is a lot to pray for. We serve a God who can do a lot. You know, when you think about praying to the great and awesome God, maybe we're too limited in what we ask And he says, make your servant successful today and granted the compassion before this man. But instead of pushing ahead immediately with his idea and plan, he keeps praying for a long time. But you know, we always want to do something. But why don't we want to pray so much to the God who can do way more than can, And the God who is the one who will make us effective in doing what we do. So I really appreciate that. Now notice he says, Grant him compassion before this man. I wonder if he didn't use that term, man, carefully. He's a mere man. Grab me compassion before this man, God. That, that, that changes things. He may be the emperor. My, my dad would always use the expression, you know, well, he may be a doctor or he may be this or that, but he puts his trousers on one leg at the top. <laughs> yeah, he yeah, is. They're just people. That's true. And especially when you compare him to God. I don't care who it is. God's way stronger than the Persian emperor or anybody else. Now, I was the cupbearer to the king. Now, apparently, the cupbearer would be the one essentially to keep the king from getting poisoned. So, you know, he would oversee perhaps the food preparation, he would see to it that no one tampered with it. Maybe in a lot of cases, he would like taste the food, or eat a bit of the food, or drink the wine prior to the king. You know, if he thinks it's okay, then he must not see it, know it's poisoned. And if he doesn't heal over, then it'll be okay for the king. But you would want to appoint somebody you really trusted. There were a lot of people who wanted to assassinate the King kings, and they did a lot of times. And poisoning was one way. So, you know, you get a guy you respect a lot, and I would assume you pay him handsomely because you don't want somebody to come along and outbid you <laughs> and uh, say, listen, I'll give you more than the king's giving you if you'll uh, do this. So so he's got, and, and then he's, he's with the king maybe on a daily basis. You know, he's not like a diplomat or he's not on the cabinet or he's not vice emperor or anything. But you think a guy who's always with the king at mealtime is probably somebody who subtly has a lot of influence on the king. You know, I imagine the king talks to him a lot. You you to be buddies with a guy like that, you know, and and you already trust him a lot. And so I bet the king talks about a lot of things. And, And what I want you to think about again is God has already begun to move on Israel's behalf. By putting a Nehemiah in such a key role right here that's going to give him an opportunity perhaps no one else would have had him, to talk to the king in the way he will to deal with this situation of wall. There are probably going to be times in your life where you're in a position to do that God puts you in to do something that maybe nobody else could do. It may be nobody else knows that non christian and has an opportunity to present the gospel, or other things where you've got an important opportunity, and God may well have put you in that place at that moment so that you can exercise that opportunity. Come into questions about what we see. seen. About. I was just thinking
1: maybe the question you asked is supposed to be rhetorical, but you asked. Why don't we, you know, pray, pray more to God than before we do things? I know for me, it. It's just because I don't, I don't want to be wrong.
0: And it's quite likely that I'm, putting it in God's name to really me. God's the one who's out. We need to put man. That's the That's the theory. That's the theory. Thank I think
2: it's we're seeing Nehemiah's uh, prayer. He knows a lot about God. He knows a lot about God's promises. And uh, when we find out what his position is, we expect him to be a priest or a scribe. We find out he's, he's just a working man. He's just a cupbearer. But yet yeah, he's taking time and by working his life, he himself to God's word.
0: Yeah, amen. Yeah, he's an ordinary guy as far as religious stuff is concerned. And yet he cares this much and prays this earnestly for so long and wants to have a role In getting this wall we built, it's amazing. He's a great inspiration to us. Other thoughts? Let me just share with you three or four questions that you can think about. That that I just thought about in connection with this uh, section. You know, what is it that we ought to be inquiring about and concerned about in the work of the Lord? maybe even in other places than where we are. When we hear a great need, spiritually, needs in the work of God, how should we respond? You know, what should we be doing in our prayers to God? Should we be addressing God more fully, confessing our sins to God, and praying to God Based upon His problem. and then when should we see perhaps the hand of God in putting us in the position we're in to do whatever the opportunity may allow us to do? So this is the beginning. This is kind of just telling what the situation is. This is the crisis. Now in chapter two, we're going to see God beginning to act and the beginning of the resolution of this terrible crisis. I appreciate the watch of your attention. You're very good attention
2: and I'm excited about yep. Um, I forgot to mention earlier in the announcements uh, Braden Allen and maybe others here that uh, I'm not aware of uh, has a severe uh, peanut allergy and um, uh, others have different kinds of allergies, so you can appreciate that, but his is, is pretty severe, uh, where he touches anything, that, that peanuts, peanut oil, that, anything like that, that right? um, then it'll give him a very bad reaction, uh, extremely severe, okay? and so if you have any snacks at all that you're eating, you need to wash your hands regularly. Uh, and, and this is not a game, okay? This is his life. And so, you, know, you don't want to be S-T-U-P-I-D and go up and, you know, slap him on the neck and, and you know, that sort of thing where we're talking about putting him in the hospital or something like that. So, we don't want to play with that. Uh, we, this would be a good place that you all can show yourselves to be uh, responsible young men, uh, be mindful of, of him and, and others. Uh, I know at the Indiana camp, there was... I don't know, three or four, yeah, uh, four different guys that, that had uh, similar allergies like that. And so, uh, not just this week, but that's the sort of thing where we need to become more aware uh, and, and more thoughtful of, of other individuals. So, uh, if you have, like, if, if you eat a snack of peanuts or whatever, um, and, and really a lot of stuff has peanut oil in it, and so you just want to uh, wash your hands and be mindful of uh, uh, his needs in, in that regard. Um, John, are they ready? Is it? I was going to check. Okay. All right. Do you have anything else? Small. Uh, okay. All right. Uh, so I want to go ahead and make this announcement, and then um, I'm going to need, I think, probably at least two volunteers. And really, you need to be able to present to me within by... By sports time tomorrow, your best argument for being chosen as one of these two volunteers. Okay, this doesn't have anything to do with camp, but it's just a good time to do this. Uh, how many of you guys have heard about the ALS ice bucket water uh, ice water challenge? Okay, you challenge to uh, pour freezing water on you and. Uh, if the person doesn't do that, they donate some money to uh, the ALS Foundation, uh, Lou Gehrig's Disease uh, the Foundation, and, uh, and a lot of people that even do it still go ahead and, and donate, and so it, it's for a good cause. Who's challenging that? Oh, yeah, uh, my uh, uh, good friend Kenny Jenkson. Uh, challenged me the other day uh, I was getting ready for camp so I didn't do it then, but I plan to do it tomorrow I'll just do it right at the beginning, the sports time. won't take up very much time at all but I need two volunteers who would be willing to uh, dump water, freezing cold water on me I, I, I need you're going to have to present your best case to me of why you should receive it, put your hand down Noah <laughs> You, you, you're going to have to present to me later on, uh, you know, why I should choose you to, to do that. You know, why? What have I done against you? You know, what's the? You know, what, why? Why should I allow you to have this revenge? Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pick out a couple of you uh, from your from your best arguments there. Okay. Anything else? Right. Counselors, teachers, do you have anything? Anybody? Uh, Gary's gonna meet for a little bit, but counselors wanna do it tonight, maybe right now, or in, in the back. Um, uh, so counselors, uh, head to the, the back, and Gary will talk a little bit about what we're gonna do during the prayer time. Um, and so, uh, we'll have a snack, and then head back to our cabins for, for that, uh, as soon as we get out a snack. No games, what was said earlier, we're not playing games, uh, during this time, we're just gonna snack, and then head back, okay? Um, let's go ahead and uh, have a uh, prayer. Uh, Jonathan Ortiz, would you please make a reference?
1: Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this week that you give us to be able to encourage one another, uh, and to be able to worship you. We ask that you to be with us and uh, help us grow in knowledge and understanding of the truth. That uh, you bless us and bless the teachers, the counselors, and the campers. Um, and we have the week of victory, and may we learn from the many examples that uh, that are in the Bible. Um, for example, like and my lord and we learn from him, and may we be able to apply all that we learned in our daily lives once we go back to that we pray. Amen. <coughs>